Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Very glad you're with us for the Friday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. Yeah, if it seems like it's been a really long week with a lot of uh, depressing stories and things that you have to wade through a lot, yeah, you're not alone. It's been a weird week that way. But uh, we're here with good, bad, and crazy martinis to get you into your weekend. And let's start with some good news. And this comes to us in the terms of clarity. I mean, the overall story is still a, a major train wreck with toxic spillage happening and tons of soil and water contaminated. I think I saw 43,000 animals died, many of them minnows and so forth. But still, the toll, at least in the immediate area, pretty severe. But one of the things uh, the Biden administration, in particular Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, has tried to do in this situation is blame the wreck on deregulation that happened during the Trump administration. Over and over again, it was uh, whoever was criticizing him, it's their fault, ultimately, for supporting deregulation. And deregulation, in general, of course, is a good thing. But as it turns out, deregulation had nothing to do with it. This is from Fox News. The operators of the Norfolk Southern train involved in a toxic derailment in East Palestine, Ohio, earlier this month, received a critical audible alarm message instructing the crew to slow and stop the train to inspect a hot axle, according to a newly released National Transportation Safety Board report on Thursday. The report said that after hearing a warning from the hot bearing detector, also known as the HBD, on train 32N, the train's engineer uh, was already braking due to a train ahead, then increased the dynamic brake application to further slow and stop the train. Train 32N passed three different HBD systems on its trip before derailment, ultimately getting 253 degrees Fahrenheit above ambient. So I won't uh, uh, gloss you over or myself with the rest of those details, Jim. But the point is, is that this was preventable. Uh, The alarms were working as they should have, and the warnings simply weren't followed. So the massive talking point coming from Buttigieg and others uh, just simply wasn't based on any reality. Yeah, when I read that, it reminded me of the common back and forth about gun control, where people say, well, we need more laws to prevent this. And in fact, very often, not only is every mass shooter violating the law, in quite a few cases, we found that people who uh, were not legally able to purchase a gun still managed to purchase a gun because the uh, instant check program did not work the way it was supposed to, or data was not entered correctly, or criminal records were not entered into the system the way they were supposed to, or something like that. Um, So the idea, well, let's pass another law, or we need more regulations, really doesn't fit it if you have regulations in the books that someone is not following. And that appears, at least so far, based on the National Transportation Safety Board's preliminary investigation, to be what happened here. If you have an alarm system and a warning that says, this is a uh, dangerous situation that could lead to an accident, and people ignore it, Passing another law isn't going to prevent that problem. That that basically is a, a user or operator problem, not a problem in the law. Um, and I noticed this comes after Pete Buttigieg arrived in East Palestine. Greg, I'm going to skip over the widespread mockery of his appearance uh, and the people who are comparing him to Dukakis in the tank and all that stuff. I, I just will note, though, that I do think Buttigieg looks, sounds 
and just seems flustered by the circumstances. He, I think he senses he didn't handle this correctly. Took 10 days before there to be any comment from him on this uh, serious disaster. Uh, there's been, you know, took 20 days for the visit. We can argue about the value of those particular visits. But I'm just going to observe um, if you you're doing a press conference near the site of a train derailment that forced people to be evacuated and had this giant chemical spill and required burn off and these really scary apocalyptic looking clouds being released and stuff like that. Greg, I'm just going to say that if at some point you're doing a press conference and you're giving remarks, let's just avoid the phrase, sorry, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> um, that just seems like an exceptionally bad uh, word choice. And this comes on the heels of the problems with air traffic control and the full ground stop that we had a couple months, about a month or two ago. Um, previous problems when Buttigieg promised that delays were going to get better by Christmas time at the at the airports, the ports issue, the re- freight rail strike that was narrowly averted. Like, there's been a lot of stuff in the transportation arena. And yes, Buttigieg gets more attention and scrutiny because he's a former presidential candidate. He's also getting more attention and scrutiny because everyone expects he will run for president again. And people are saying, hey, if you're doing a not so swell job of running the Department of Transportation, maybe you're not going to do such a swell job of running the you know entire executive branch. I just kind of dawned on me, Greg, like you realize that at this point, Joe Biden could effectively end Pete Buttigieg's career. Yeah. I don't just mean as secretary of transportation by asking for his resignation, but I think if he, if, if Biden who has put up, you know, who thinks that Millie and Austin are doing a great job and Blinken's doing a terrific job in the international, you know, that if Biden who, who see, gives no indication of having any problem with anybody in his administration looked at Buttigieg and said, you know, I think it's time for some new leadership here, perhaps after the nudging of vice president Kamala Harris, who reportedly can't stand Buttigieg. Um, that would effectively end Buttigieg, his aspirations in uh, in Washington. He could do other things with his life, but I don't think his presidential ambitions would be serious after that. Or, or do you think I'm overstating that? It's potentially true. I mean, you've talked frequently about the wing of the party that doesn't like him uh, because of his McKinsey era. And he's just kind of this ivory tower guy who seems to have all the right sound bites, but doesn't have a lot of practical experience. I guess we'd have to kind of whip out one of Kamala Harris's Venn diagrams here and figure out whether the people who already don't like him overlap a lot with the people who would like him less if Biden were to let him go, or whether those are largely the same people. You could also argue that Joe Biden has ruined Kamala Harris's career, even though she flamed out on her own. I don't think people thought her as a kind of a a giggling idiot until she became vice president. So, uh, you know, he might be responsible for for kneecapping a a couple of potential successors, which might be kind of the inspector gadget way of uh, keeping your keeping your rivals further away from you. But, uh, uh, you know, Greg, Greg, I'm just suddenly realizing, you know, on this podcast, we make fun of Joe Biden a lot. But if he ends up ending the careers of Kamala Harris and Pete Buttigieg, <laughs> is he secretly a genius that we just haven't noticed? No, he's bumbling his way through it, I think, uh, because, you know, Harris was picked because he was pandering, remember, and how he's choosing his vice president. And Pete Buttigieg was because he was trying to uh, check all the boxes and maybe keep a potential presidential rival uh, closer to him than further away, kind of like Obama did with Hillary, although in a much less prestigious position, just turns out that there's been a lot of problems in the transportation sector. So they keep popping up and uh, Buttigieg apparently isn't that great at responding to them. Remember, he did say, Jim, uh, in one interview this week that, you know, I was mayor of South Bend for uh, eight years. We had we had disasters. <laughs> I guess that's, looking back in at the 2020 cycle, 
there was always something bizarre about Pete Buttigieg having been mayor of South Bend, Indiana, and saying, this means I'm ready to be president of the United States. Oh, by the way, I haven't been like exceptionally young as well, which is the other thing. And, you know, so yes, I yeah, pretty obviously Joe Biden is not really a genius, but it is kind of fascinating that he's eliminated all buzz that, oh, Kamala Harris should take over or, oh, you know, that Pete Buttigieg is a really promising guy. All of that ended after Biden entrusted them with important responsibilities. <laughs> Pete Buttigieg, you know, he's in his very early 40s. He looks like he's about 25. That doesn't help him either. And so, uh, you know, he's just not responding well. And then, I'm sure you saw this yesterday, Jim, his uh, his press spokesman was there with him in Ohio. He said, happy to talk to you about all this stuff, just not on camera. You've been around the media a long time. Is that typical? Or is that somebody who wants to be able to spin the story later on? Not only is that rare in Washington, Greg, it's really rare for Pete Buttigieg to not want to talk on camera. <laughs> And I think that's a sign that he recognizes that there's uh, that he, this is not an issue that's going well for him, that he does come across as in over his head and is now unnerved or worried about uh, things, you know, uh, the perception that he's just this, you know, stumbling his way through there, much more interested in running for president than actually doing the job in front of him. So. Well said, Jim. Well said. And the Biden administration's got more trouble coming up in the bad martini. All right, Jim, on to our bad martini now. And the Biden administration likes to tell us that inflation, uh, it's ebbing and it's going away and it's not going to be a big problem anymore. Our policies through the Inflation Reduction Act have been successful. Well, the rapid increase in inflation has ebbed. Uh, There may have been a month or two where it ticked down just barely. The last report, as you and Chad discussed, was certainly not good. Right after the president said things were good in the State of the Union address. And now we have more evidence that things are not headed in the right direction. Uh, This is from the government's own data, the Bureau of Economic Analysis, and specifically the Personal Consumption Expenditures, just released today. Personal income increased $131.1 billion in January, according to estimates released today. Disposable personal income increased $387.4 billion, and personal consumption expenditures increased $312.5 billion. So basically, consumption is still rampant, and that means that prices are are in a place where they're going to have to keep going up, and that's why the Fed keeps talking about having to raise interest rates again to try and fend this off. So the silver lining here is that wages seem to be keeping up a little bit better, so people have that income to spend. But as long as that keeps happening, the prices aren't going back down. Greg, I want to remind listeners of your very smart observation, one that I have cited a few times in the jolt since then, that the rise in prices really began late summer, early fall of 2021. So by the time we got to late summer, early fall 2022, and they said, oh, prices were high, but not as high as they've been before. Well, okay, yeah, but we've entered now the second year of high inflation. So those year-over-year numbers are comparing not to like, you know, what you might call quote-unquote normal numbers, but over the price jump that had begun back in fall 2021. Here we are, and so now we're really in our second year. And yes, I am glad that the inflation rate is closer to 6% rather than the uh, god-awful 9% we had seen in summer, but that's still pretty darn high, very far from the Fed's goal of 2% on a year-to-year basis. And I just kind of would ask listeners to, you know, do you, as you go grocery shopping, you fill up your, your tank at the gas station, you go around, you're shopping at, you know, whether it's Walmart or Target or wherever you do your shopping, 
do the prices seem better? Do the prices seem nice? I mean, like maybe it's not quite the same. Oh my God, how the hell did this get so expensive? But it's that's you know, it, it's still not good. It's still pretty high. Uh, nobody feels like they're getting a bargain anymore. And it's kind of this, you know, if you look shopping for flights, for example, I mean, all kinds of things are just way more expensive than they were a year or two ago. So I know Biden, you know, anytime it goes down a little bit from the previous month, he's convinced it's a it's a huge victory. He spikes the football and everything's great. But I think most Americans don't feel like inflation is, is you know, like it, it's not as, ba- not as bad as it once was, which, by the way, was the worst in 40 years is really not that much of an improvement. And I think these additional numbers kind of point in that same direction. Yeah, it's not it's not as bad as it once was. That's about the nicest thing you can say about it for the average American family trying to make ends meet and hopefully, you know, maybe you want to save a little bit for retirement or kids' college education or you're afraid your, you know, home hot water heater is going to go on the fritz or you feel like you want to trade in your new car or you want to trade in and get a new car. You know, no, nothing on inflation is that much better. It, you know, these are not good and it's kind of revealing that this is, you know, contra- the contrast between the administration's spin and happy talk and the actual economic numbers, uh, particularly on inflation, is, you know, extraordinarily frustrating. And unfortunately, Greg, it doesn't look like it's going anywhere anytime soon. Now, now, and you're right, uh, Mrs. Columbus normally uh, takes care of the grocery shopping, but every once in a while I'll see something and I'm like, holy smokes. And this happened yesterday as I was uh, preparing my lunch, just looking at the deli turkey from the local grocery store. Mm. I remember not that long ago, to like eight, nine, at the most $10 a pound, $16 for a pound of sliced turkey. I don't know if this was from some... <laughs> You know, really special was turkey. It, is I don't it think Whole Foods? So. Was it the sort of it thing we have to put down, take out a second mortgage to get the groceries? <laughs> no, this is this is from the normal local grocery store, and uh, sixteen dollars a pound. So on the one hand, you're like, man, I better spread this out and have a little less meat on the sandwich. And then you're like, well, no, I need to put more on to make sure I actually eat all of it this weekend before before it goes bad over the weekend. So, uh, but it's just crazy, and uh, you know, that's just one item, and so. You add it up and add it up and add it up, and you are paying a lot more than you were uh, just a year and a half ago, or or even more than that. So uh, it's it's still a pain on American families, and it's not going down uh, at the rate we would like to see. I, I was going to say, I think what you just described there, Greg, is pro- probably like half our listeners, maybe more than half our listeners. Like, yes, the exact same sort of thing happened to me. I would also note if the wonderful company Whole Foods ever wants to be a sponsor on this <laughs> podcast. I love Whole Foods. I just it's it's not cheap, and I think everybody would recognize that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not holding my breath on that one. If they're listening to the content, they're they're pretty woke. But uh, you know, they want to spend money on us. We'll let them. All right, on to our crazy martini now, Jim, and uh, we are apparently getting the gang back together in some respect when it comes to the 2024 presidential election. Biden hasn't officially jumped in yet, and there's some more uh, Democratic rumblings about whether he should. Ari Melber on MSNBC was just uh, musing about that the other day, but every indication is that he's going to, and given the fact that Democrats did better in the midterms than expected, he's probably not going to get a lot of opposition. Donald Trump, of course, is in. Uh, Nikki Haley's in. She's new, and we talked about Vivek Ramaswamy yesterday, but uh, getting back in from the 2020 cycle... Mary Ann Williamson. That's right. You might remember her from the very, very end of the stage in some of those early 
double header nights of uh, Democratic debates because they had whatever it was, 25, 26 or more uh, candidates uh, hitting the debate stage. She's an author and, you know, she kind of thinks about things in a mystical sort of way, light and darkness and that sort of thing as it related to politics. Uh, And so, so far, uh, and this isn't official yet, it's going to be March 4th, apparently, she's going to make her big announcement. Uh, Marianne Williamson is going to be the first announced challenger to the sitting president of the United States in his own party. Greg, I don't know about you. I I have fond memories of Marianne Williamson in the Democratic debates. Uh, In fact, she said she generally had a more warm reception from certain conservatives than she did from a bunch of liberals. And I think some of that was that even if you don't want Marianne Williamson to be president, and I certainly don't, I think sometimes she would say things about the idea of uh, a spiritual sickness at the heart of America, the idea that we've lost touch with who makes us what we are, that we're too angry a country, we're too eager to blame each other. You know, these, you don't have to be a, a flaming liberal to believe these things. I think there's, she's, she's, you know, right church, wrong pew, maybe by the way we think of it. There's something, she's in the ballpark of the right answer in there, even if it's not really the sort of thing a commander-in-chief is, you know, supposed to handle in our society. And she was just kind of funny. I mean, you'd listen to one Democratic aspiring president after another talk about, you know, Donald Trump is just the worst. But then she would come along and say that he literally was commanding dark spiritual forces and that perhaps he was from the Black Lodge and that only by going through the Red Room outside of Twin Peaks, Washington, could we possibly avert. Anyway, so you get the idea that she was this weird crystal waving new age hippy dippy. But there was something kind of charming and likable about her. Uh, and her entire persona and the way she pursued these sorts of things. And the thing about her taking on Biden, uh, let's face it, how surprising it is that Biden, his job approval rating is not all that high. He's 80. He's getting older. They say his health is terrific. I mean, we can see the guy. He doesn't seem to be. And if he fulfilled his second term, he'd be 86 years old. There was a lot of talk back when Biden was running in 2020 that he'd probably only serve one term that he'd pass the torch to Kamala Harris. Well, as we discussed in this podcast, that's not going to happen. Uh, And that he was almost like a placeholder president, that he was there to pass the torch to some younger generation. And now it appears he won't have any significant uh, primary challenger. There was some buzz around Gavin Newsom earlier. J.B. Pritzker was traveling to Iowa and New Hampshire. There were some signs, but in the end, they did, Democrats did better than they expected on the midterms. And it appears most Democrats believe anybody else would probably be a weaker nominee. But that doesn't mean Democrats are necessarily happy with this set of circumstances. And I think just by being up on, first of all, Greg, could you imagine the 80 to 81 year old Biden and Marianne Williamson debating? <laughs> right. I, I, yeah, I could hear every listener probably laughing at that same kind of thought. So this one that'll be absolutely, you know, fasc- you know, fascinating to watch, too. I think just by running, she'll effectively be the protest vote. She will effectively be no, not Biden. I'm not happy with things. And I kind of think a decent number of Democrats will be tempted to pull to, to vote in that direction. I, there's no chance Marianne Williamson's going to beat Biden. He's going to win most of these states, you know, probably 90-10 or something. But it's not crazy to think she could get 20%, and who knows, maybe even 30% or something, simply as a vote of frustration. Um, Bernie Sanders did really well against Hillary Clinton. I think Democrats don't like being told you have to support this person. I think they prefer having a choice. And I think there are a decent number of Democrats who are less than thrilled with Biden and may want to vote for Marianne Williamson uh, just sort of as a protest vote or to say I'm not happy with the status quo. But I've been wrong before, Greg. 
Well, I mean, Bernie was supposed to be the afterthought in 2016. He was supposed to be very token opposition, this uh, wild-eyed socialist who can't even comb his hair. Oh, and put in the guy who wants the metric system and Jim Webb, who's probably closer to the Republicans in some ways, especially on gun control and some other things. And uh, what was it? Martin O'Malley was up there. I mean, that was supposed to be <laughs> just the easiest romp to the nomination ever. And because Hillary Clinton is so... <laughs> unlikable, uh, Bernie Sanders really ran with her stride for stride for a very long time. I don't think Marianne Williamson uh, is going to end up doing that. The question is whether the fact that she opens the door uh, means anybody else tries to get in. I think his numbers would have to get worse uh, for that to happen of somebody with a little more stature than her. But if it does happen, remember, when uh, incumbent presidents have to fend off a uh, reputable primary challenger, they do it but they take a hit from it, and they end up usually losing the general election. Think of Ford against Reagan or Carter against Ted Kennedy or even Bush against Pat Buchanan, for heaven's sake. So uh, yeah. it's 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 not a good thing if, if you're trying to run for re-election and you get a serious candidate in your primary. I was going to say that is one reason why I think there's enormous pressure on any other Democrat not to jump in. Um, if Biden loses, you'll be the scapegoat. Everyone will choose to blame you, and people will say you've been a disloyal or you've hurt the party or stuff like that. I also do think, though, I mean, look, as I mentioned, you know, Biden is is 80 years old. His health doesn't seem great. The idea of Biden having either, you know, God forbid, some terrible health issue or something that kind of says, you know, let's say just a moment where Biden looks really bad on stage, uh, where he, you know, he's he keeps tripping as he goes up the White House stairs, just something where people really start to worry about Biden's health. It might be worthwhile to be, if not Gavin Newsom, you know, some likable Democratic governor who's just in the race and hanging around, ready to make the most of the opportunity if for some reason Biden can't go. And for obvious reasons, the party has doubts about Kamala Harris and everyone else. So, you know, I'm kind of surprised you haven't seen some governor make some noises about that, but maybe they're waiting for some clearer sign that Biden won't be able to go for the next four years. Yeah, I, I doubt if it's just Biden and Williamson that there will be any primary debates. But if there are, I'm looking forward to him calling her Marilyn and Marjorie and, and not remembering at all that she ran in, in 2020 and things like that. And then just trying to keep up with whatever mystical point she's trying to make. Mm. I, 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 I agree with Marjorie on that. You know, I was practically raised by the New Age community. <laughs> Why not? He's been raised by everybody else. Oh, man. Good stuff. Good way to enter the weekend. Jim, have a good one. I'll see you on Monday. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. Thanks so much for being with us today. Uh, do subscribe to the podcast if you don't already. Please tell a friend about us as well. Thanks for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Please keep those coming. Get us on your home devices. All you have to say is play 3 Martini Lunch Podcast. Follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a great weekend and join us again on Monday for the next 3 Martini Lunch.